Okay, cool. I think we're on. Uh, we'll uh, we'll continue, continue those over coffee uh, later on. Let me just uh, add my welcome to the team's welcome. My name is Dan. If you're new uh, with us, if you're a guest, a really warm welcome to you. We do love having uh, visitors and new faces amongst us. Uh, uh, great to have you with us. Um, as, uh, as Hazel said, we are going to be continuing... It's become evident, our truth series um, this morning, um, which Joss kicked off brilliantly last week, just superb. And uh, I just want to add to, to Joss's recommendation, uh, my recommendation for that book of uh, John Mark Comer's uh, called Live No Lies, just superb. Um, and if you, uh, if you didn't pick one up in the last week, I just want to really encourage you to get a hold of that book because it's extremely helpful. Uh, just very, very insightful, very insightful. And um, I think it'll be really helpful for us as we go through this series to be able to have a, a copy of that to read through. So, uh, so do grab that. Uh, we are going to be in uh, Romans 1 uh, this morning as we look to open up uh, the book of Romans, the letter of Romans over the coming weeks. And just to remind us uh, before we read that, that we said that our aims for this truth series would be essentially three, threefold. Our hopes for this series, A, to define the content of the gospel, secondly, to ask how do we apply it to our lives, and thirdly, to ask how do we share it with others. So that's going to be the lens through which we're going to uh, think about this message today and look through Romans 1. So we're going to read Romans 1, and if you've ever read Romans 1 before, you know we're in for a treat. (laughs) Um, That was a joke, by the way. Um, I don't know why I get landed with these ones, but that's okay. So um, why don't you turn to your Bible? We're going to be in Romans 1, and we're going to start from verse 16, which is where uh, we read last week. So it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is a heavy, heavy passage of scripture, isn't it? And I think that we do well to grasp the gravity and the tragedy, tragedy of it, to be honest. It, you know, Paul, Paul, as Paul writes that, he says it just how it is. And actually, I think that's a good thing, because as we heard last week, the world needs truth tellers. The world needs truth tellers, even when the truths are hard to hear, especially when the truths are hard to hear. Because the alternative is that we live at best in ignorance and at worst in a reality of our own design, which is really no reality at all. You know, the, the point that Paul is making here and actually the whole thrust of my message and actually what's come through the worship is that we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We, we need saving. We need Jesus. Now, Paul starts by making the point in verse 16 that salvation through the gospel is available to both Jews and Greeks. He's saying salvation is available to all. It's available to all. But before he can open up how that salvation is accessed, he has to make his case for why they need to be saved in the first place. And, and that's what we read, and that's exactly what he goes on to do from verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 of Romans, actually. And I want to say the point of this passage is not to single anybody out. The point of this passage is not to single out any specific sin. Actually, if you draw that conclusion, then you miss the point. Actually, no, the point that Paul, as Paul goes on actually to say explicitly in chapter 3, is that all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. It is to make clear, crystal clear, the folly of, of all humanity in our rejection of God and to help us understand God's perspective and God's providence over the fallen state of humanity. You know, Paul's argument is that all have sinned and fallen short and therefore all need the salvation that is offered through the gospel. And that is just as true today as it was when Paul was writing this letter. Now, whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian here today, I'm sure that to some extent, we all recognise the signs of fallen humanity. Maybe some of them are more blatant in the perversion of culture, the disregard seemingly for integrity, the injustices and the abuses that we see and we read about in our world. Others actually are more subtle, or maybe we just like to ignore them because we know actually that we see them in ourselves, in the things that we say, in the things that we think, the things that we do, the ways that we treat or mistreat one another. And when we read Romans 1, we've got to come to terms with the fact that as humanity, we have become corrupt. We have deviated from our design. We have gone astray. 
And as a result, something within us has broken beyond our means, our own means of repairing. Meaning that we need something or someone greater than us to intervene. Because the impact of sin is that it has and does cause damage to us, to one another, and it destroys the world that we live in. Paul writes in verse 23 about exchanging the glory of the immortal God for idols and worshipping created things instead of worshipping the creator. How foolish, really. How foolish. That, but, but that's what we see around us, isn't it? And let's not kid ourselves. Often, that's what we see in ourselves too. The worship of sex, the worship of money and image, the worship of self, the worship of pleasure, the pursuit of comfort and control and security of our own making. We've essentially made gods of those things. We've made gods of ourselves in our culture. We want to be autonomous. We don't want to be accountable. We want to make our own rules. If it feels good, it is good. If it, if it feels right, if it seems right, it is right. If it's my truth, it is truth. And you know what? You can have your truth too. Society today wants to live as if there is no God. We don't want to live under any kind of high authority. Instead, we want to live as we please without any kind of restraint. And we want to do so without a guilty conscience. Thank you very much. So we deny that there is a creator above it all because that lets us off. But in doing so, we deny that there's any kind of design to the world. And if we, design, if we deny the design, then there's no intent in the world. And if there's no intent, well, then there's no morality. And if there's no morality, there's no accountability. So then everything just comes down to chance and survival of the fittest. Which means we all get to do as we please. We get to pick our own versions of morality because there's no accountability to anyone anyway. And no one has the right to judge anybody's behaviour. And that tragically is the stumbling block of the gospel for many because the gospel confronts the pride of humanity and it requires the humility to acknowledge and turn from our corrupt ways. You know, we talk at Lifespring about wanting to become authentic disciples of Jesus, which means that for us, Jesus is our standard. However, of the culture that we live in, the author Jonathan Grant says this. He says, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from the outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It's deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. It seems that today in this nation, we're not only post-Christian, we're post-truth in many ways. We've made authority, sorry, we've made self the authority on, what, uh, on, on morality and, and on what is good. In other words, no one can tell me what is right or wrong or who to be. I have my truth and you have your truth. 
You know, be true to yourself. That's the language of our day, isn't it? We've constructed our own framework of morality, of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable. But Romans 1 makes plain the fact that as humanity, we are not God unto ourselves. We're not our own masters. We are created beings by a God who rules and reigns over everything. But as Paul says in verse 23, we've suppressed the truth and we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. But in our rejection of God and our pursuit of life, pleasure, happiness on our own terms, we've, we've actually made a mess of it. And you only have to look at the state of the world to see that that is what happens. All is not well. All is not well. And so three times in this passage, Paul uses the phrase that God gave them up to describe how God's wrath is being revealed through the degeneration of society. John Ziesler writes that God's wrath operates not by God's intervening, but precisely by his not intervening, by letting men and women go their own way. It's like God allowing us to find out what happens when we go our own way. And to a degree, his wrath is revealed in that because he allows us to live with the consequences of our choice. Until we realise that actually we're not able to correct what's wrong in our world on our own. You know, whatever ideologies, whatever philosophies we might live by, the fact is that we will never by ourselves fix what resulted from the curse in Genesis 3 at the fall of man. And that is the point. We need God. We need God. The tragedy of our severed relationship with God should point us back to him through the gospel. We need to understand two important things to frame all of this that we're reading. Firstly, that God is a God of love. He's a God of love. Just because he's all powerful, just because he's, he rules over all things, doesn't mean that he has to be a tyrant. No, actually, his power and his rule is matched by his love, by his mercy, by his compassion and his kindness. Most importantly, he's not only the judge, he's the mediator and he's the saviour. And secondly, we must understand that we have very real, we have an enemy, the devil. He is called the deceiver because that is his very nature. The father of lies, as he is called. He is the source of our corruption. And it, it was our, insofar as we as humanity identify with the sin of Adam and Eve, it was our partnership with the devil's lies which brought the curse in the first place. He's the one who lied to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and got her to question God's love and goodness. He got her to question her trust in God. And the lie the enemy has sold the world is that God is a God of judgment only. But that's a half truth. It's a half truth. And we all know that the best lies are the ones that have got enough truth in them to make them believable, right? But God is the God of both judgment and mercy. And in fact, his mercy triumphs over judgment. The truth is that God loves us. He loves us even in our fallenness, even in our rebellion, even in our rejection of him. He loves us. He has mercy and compassion on us. This quote from Live No Lies um, from John Mark Comer 
It says, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order, is credited with defining sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. This is why the devil's primary target is our trust in God and his truth as it comes to us in Scripture. If we can get us to doubt God and instead trust our own inner tuition as an accurate compass to the good life, he has us. In the ultimate irony, sin sabotages our capacity for happiness by appealing to our God-given desire for happiness via deceptive ideas. That is the strategy of the enemy, to use temptation to play to our God-given desires with the lie that will be better satisfying them, doing them our own way. And the reason this works is that because since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we have become slaves to sin. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, sin became part of our very nature. And that is the reason for everything from the most shameful acts that we see in humanity right through to those hidden inclinations in our own heads and hearts that no one else knows about but that which we know are wrong. And then everything in between in the human flawed, in a flawed human character. So what's the solution? What's the solution? The fact is that nothing short of total reconstruction by new birth can save us. But this is exactly what Jesus came to bring about. This is exactly what he came to do. Jesus came to reveal God the Father perfectly. His holiness, his power, And his love, he came to bring the message not only of God's coming judgment, but more so of the invitation to receive of God's mercy and his grace, of his forgiveness. This is the wonder of the gospel that even though we rejected God and went our own way, that God, through Jesus, offers us a fresh start. He offers a fresh start because Jesus came to live as a human, perfectly under the rule of God, surrendered to his Father, just as we ought to have been, to come and live out a life of perfect righteousness, the one that in our fallen state we couldn't live. He came to live that perfectly, but not only that, but to come and bear the full weight of the punishment of the sin, of that, that, the punishment we deserve to pay because of our sin. Jesus came to pay that penalty, to suffer the full weight of the punishment at the cross so that God's wrath, his full wrath against sin would be fully satisfied as Jesus paid the debt that we owed and absorbed the judgment of God upon himself on that cross. That's the gospel message. That's what Jesus did at the cross so that we could be saved not only from our guilt of sin, but that we would be born again of the spirit, that we'd be given a new nature, not a sinful nature, but God's nature, that we would then be free also from the power of sin. We'd be set free, no longer slaves to sin. And we'd be given the hope of a coming day when ultimately we'd be free even from the very presence of sin and its damaging effects. 
on that day when God makes all things new, when he restores what's been broken and when he wipes away every tear. So how do we live in the good of this now? Well, Romans, Romans 6 actually tells us that when we're set free from slavery to sin, actually we become a new kind of slave. We become a slave of righteousness. Remember that we were never created to be autonomous gods unto ourselves. We were created to live under the loving rule of God, a God who loves us and wants us to flourish. We tend to think of freedom as having no limits, as having no restraint. And that's appealing to us because we believe that we not only know best, but want best for ourselves. But actually, that's often thinking to say that, actually, I've got to look after myself because nobody else will. And so we've made gods of our own desires. You know, the slogans of our day are things like the heart wants what it wants. Follow your heart. You do you. If it feels good, it is you. Be true to yourself. Coma writes that happiness has become about feeling good, not being good. The good life has become about getting what we want, not becoming the kind of people who truly want good things. True freedom is freedom to live by faith, by trust in our maker, in our creator, to live as we were intended to live in the Garden of Eden, to walk in communion with a loving God under his loving rule. So how do we live this way? How do we stay alert to the lies of the enemy and his schemes to draw us away from trusting God? Well, becoming slaves of righteousness is not about becoming slaves of righteous behaviour. Now, when we're born again, we are united with Christ. It's just said last week, we mustn't make the gospel into a formula. The gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus. You know, sin leads to death because it doesn't recognise or embrace Jesus' lordship. Righteousness leads to life because it does. It is about us coming into line with who we were created to be. It's about worship. It's about relationship. Paul wrote in Galatians 5 about us keeping in step with the Spirit. He said, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, I'm sure we all recognise the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. I know I do. In you know, one moment I can be on track with the Spirit. My heart is engaged with God, walking in holiness and worship. But then the enemy comes with temptation to distract and to draw me away. Do you notice that whenever that happens, the temptation is always partnered with a lie? It comes back to Genesis 3 again. Did God really say? Did God really say you can't do that thing? Is it, is it in the Bible? Did God really say it's not good for you? Or can you really trust God to satisfy, to satisfy the desire you have? Can you really trust God to fulfil those dreams and desires? Can you really trust God to come through for you or to provide the things that you need in life? Can you really trust him? Will he really come through? Where is his track record? 
And suddenly you forget everything that you've ever seen God do. You forget every testimony in your own life or the the lives of those around you. But that is because the enemy is a deceiver. That is his very strategy. So we've got to be aware and on guard by having truth close at hand so that we can stand firm upon it. But most importantly, we need to cling to Jesus. We need to cling to Jesus. Jesus said that he came that we would have life in all its fullness. He didn't come to squash us. He didn't come to minimise us. He didn't come to be a joy killer. No, the opposite. He said, I made you. I created you. I created you to know life in all of its abundance. I created you to know the wonder of who I am. My goodness, my glory, my kindness, my love, my power. I came to set you free from those trivial, broken ways that you've fallen into and bring you into real life, into real life, into real joy, into real peace, into real hope, into real purpose, into a real sense of your own value, your own worth of what I say over you. That's what he came to do. We need to cling to Jesus Because that's his desire for us. And we experience that not only through our relationship with him, but through deciding to walk in his ways for us, to walk in his truth, to walk in his righteousness. We discover the blessing of God in our lives. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to be our guide. It's why we cultivate a lifestyle of prayer and communion with God so that our first response in the face of temptation is to call out to Jesus, our defender and our strength. As we sang this morning, God, I need you. Lord, I need you in my weakest moments, in those moments of temptation where the enemy comes to accuse and to distract and destroy and to draw us away. God, I need you in those moments. He wants to be a shepherd to us in those moments. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He's kind. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to, bring, to reconcile the world back to God. Through the gospel, through forgiveness, through what he did on the cross. This is also why we need to walk in accountable relationships with one another. To sharpen one another, to encourage one another, to pick one another up when we fall down. Then finally, Paul's criticism in verse 32, at the end of that chapter we read, is of those who, he says, though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now we are, those of us who are believers in in, in Jesus, followers of Christ, we are as those who have received the grace of God that brought us out of slavery to sin to be those who hold out the light of the gospel into the darkness rather than give approval to the fallen ways of the world actually where to hold out the truth of the gospel that we know brings freedom and life. However unpopular that may be, our job is to hold out the truth and the light of the gospel. Now Paul, as we read, doesn't mince his words in teaching that the charge against humanity is that we are all under the power of sin and are guilty for it. 
that we are sinful, guilty and without excuse before God, condemned and deserving of punishment. That is the truth. That is reality. But we are those to whom the truth has been revealed about what Jesus came to do and win for us. The victory at the cross, the triumph over sin and death at the cross that brought us out of death and into life, that gave us a hope and a future to give us a free gift of forgiveness, a free gift of life that we didn't deserve, that he gave freely of his love and of his grace. We are those to whom the truth has been revealed, praise God. And therefore, as Paul said in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to a world who desperately needs to know the truth desperately needs to know the truth. We have something to give away, don't we? Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he didn't mean that some some are righteous and some aren't. He meant that some people think they are. This is what John Stott says in his commentary on Romans. To be sure, Some people insist with great bravado that they are neither sinful nor guilty and that they do not need Christ. It would be quite wrong to seek to induce guilty feelings in them artificially. But if sin and guilt are universal as they are, we cannot leave people alone in such a false paradise of supposed innocence. The most irresponsible action of a doctor would be to go along with a patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. Our Christian duty is rather through prayer and teaching to bring people to accept the true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God. Otherwise, they will never respond to the gospel. That's why I'm giving you this message today. We've got truth we need to share. Our responsibility is to be truth tellers. It's our responsibility as, as disciples is to be truth tellers. We do those around us a disservice if we don't give people the full gospel. If we try and dumb it down and make it palatable, we do them a disservice. The full gospel that humanity has become corrupt, that we have been spoiled by sin and that we need a saviour. We need a saviour. Again, Paul's criticism was to those who knew God but still gave their approval to the sinful practices of others. Is it any better for us who know God to withhold the truth to a world who has been deceived by the enemy. Is that any better? To tell the truth of who Jesus is and reveal the truth of who Jesus is as those full of his spirit to reveal him through what we say, through what we do, through how we love and serve. We are to speak the truth in love. You know, Jesus did say profound, controversial and at times offensive things. He did. In his day. And those things are still very much controversial today as we share the gospel. But as we speak the truth, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to have hearts of compassion and love for the lost, like Jesus did. He said hard things. He didn't mince his words either. He told it like it was, but he did it from a place of love, not judgment, condemnation. He did it from a place of love to reconcile lost sheep, reconcile lost people back to their creator. And that's what he's doing today. He comes to seek and save the lost. 
He knows the reality is there is a deceiver in the world, the devil who is looking to kill, steal and destroy through his deceptions. Where to carry the love of God and the light of the gospel to, to, to see the scales come off people's eyes, to see who Jesus is, to see the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel. And where to be, we need to be uncompromising in it. We need to be uncompromising in it. We need to be unapologetic with the truth and our practice of it. We're not to avoid disagreement and confrontation. No, we're we're to understand the powers that are at work in our world and understand that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, as Paul taught in Ephesians 6, but actually we're to point people to Jesus, the truth who brings life. He is the truth who brings life. This all comes back to Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. We need him.